All right. Well, we are on week number five of Exodus, His Move, My Groove. So you can go ahead and turn to the book of Exodus and um, right there around chapters one and chapter three, we're doing kind of a leapfrog approach to the book of Exodus um, and seeing what God is going to teach us as a church um, on how to respond to Him, how to find our groove in the midst of this move that He has us in as a church. We're going to be moving buildings here and and uh, we're getting closer to finding something, and it's exciting, and we'll let you guys know as those things happen. Um, what we do know is that the nation of Israel sojourned in the land of Egypt. We talked about sojourning last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to the podcast. But we talked about how Israel sojourned. They had a temporary stay in the land of Egypt for, uh, for 400 years. And then God moves them out of Egypt into a promised land and into a promised life. And this week, I want to come back to something that I said the very first week of this teaching series. And that is that God, in His sovereignty, moves His people. And when I say move, I mean geographically, obviously, a physical geographical move. But, but also, and maybe even more than that, how God is active in our life. He moves in our lives. Things happen in our life that God allows or even causes but when God moves in our lives, it's for the purpose of moving us towards something. But again, in His sovereignty, at the very same time, it's for the purpose of moving us away from something. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Um, if God is moving His people toward a promised land and toward a promised life, then what is it that God is moving us away from? And what was He moving Egypt, uh, Israel away from. The first thing I want you to write down is this. God was moving his people away from the oppression that Egypt brought. God was moving his people away from the oppression that Egypt brought. Look at Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1. And you guys know I always recommend writing things, uh, underlining things, things that stick and if there's anything that sticks this morning, write that down. Make a note of it in your Bible so that you can remember it later as you study and ponder and pray. Look what it says in verse 11. It says that the Egyptians appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And then look down at verse 13. It says, the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And then verse 14, it says that they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labors in the fields, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Okay, let's pause real quick and look at the words that it's using to describe the lives of the Israelites in Egypt and how they were treated. It says that the taskmasters over them afflicted them with hard labor. Everybody say hard labor. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor Rigorously, So the people of Israel labored rigorously. They didn't just work. They worked really hard, really intensely. It says that they made their lives bitter with hard labor, with um, labor all kinds in the field, making bricks, mortar. And then it says this, all their labors, which they rigorously, the Egyptians, rigorously imposed on them. That word rigorously means uh, like ruthlessly. In other words, with no heart and no remorse, for the way they were, they were um, treating 
the Israelites. In fact, that word rigorously actually means, literally means to crush. Okay? So the Egyptians were crushing the people of Israel. And guess what? Israel was miserable. I just thought about how that rhymes. Israel was miserable. I remember when Melissa and I first got married, I worked for a company here in Tyler called Global Alarm Systems. And they installed basically anything low voltage, alarm systems, fire alarm systems, surround sound, I mean all kinds of just low voltage stuff. And that's what I did to support my family when when I first got married. And um, I can remember I, as the new guy, was the attic rat. Okay, that was my term. You're the attic rat. And what that meant is that for four to five, sometimes six hours of the day, whether it's winter or the heat of summer, August in Texas, my job was to go up into that 145 degree attic and find wires, drill holes, roll around in insulation, um, whatever I had to do, whatever they were yelling at me from inside the house to do. And, uh, and it was hard. When it's 145 degrees in an attic, you're sweating, you're completely drenched within like five minutes. You guys hear what I'm talking about? How many have ever experienced anything like that? It is miserable, okay? I can remember many times, one time in particular, there's this difficult house that had difficult pitches, and so I literally had to crawl out on my belly in a 145 degree attic in the midst of that gray insulation. You guys know what I'm talking about? That nasty stuff that like will kill you, and so you're you know crawling out to the edge of this thing, reaching your your you know right there, and, and they're moving this wire around. It's an interesting process, and then you got to grab it, and then you got to pull it, you know. So I'm literally on my face, on my belly, in an attic, and I did this for two years. I don't know why I did this for two years. I don't know why I was the attic rat for two years because we had other new people that came. <laughs> I think it's just that I was really good at it, you know? I don't know. Now, what? I must have been like a rat. I was, if I was a superhero, I'd be Ratman. You know what I mean? Ratman rises. So, anyway, my point is, is that all of this, by the way, it was for $6.25 an hour. Talk about slavery. You know what I mean? Now, listen. You know, when you work is work and when you're providing for your family and you're doing it with a purpose and you're doing it, you know, for pay, it's, it's not, it's, it, you just do what you got to do. I thought about, as I was thinking about that story this week, I thought about um, um, Chris Pound and how he works at different times and now Rex is working a little bit with Matt Cope and they tell me how hot it is as they're digging trenches and they're installing sprinkler systems and I'm like, man, it is, dude, it's out and you're out in the sun. But, you know, when, you, when you're doing that for pay and you're doing that for a purpose, it's not that big a deal. It's a different story when you're doing it with a whip on your back. Amen? It's a totally different story when you have a whip on your back and, and there's no way out of it. And, and, you know, I only worked there for two years and that season passed, you know. But whenever this is your lot in life and every day is a winding road, <laughs> um, it's, it's tough. You know what I mean? Listen, the people of Israel were miserable. If you look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, you guys remember Marvin a few weeks ago talked about when God was calling Moses. And when God called Moses, here's what he said. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Actually, start back in verse 7. 
Remember Moses hid his face from the Lord because he was afraid to look at God and all that. And then Moses, uh, God said to Moses in verse 7, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. The power of the Egyptians, literally the power that they held over the Israelites. And I think the force in which they held that power the power of the whip coming down, the strength of the punch or the whatever to make them work, the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites. And that's not Perizzites, that's Perizzites. And the Hivites, that wouldn't be a fun land, would it? Parasites everywhere. Uh, and the Jebusites. In verse 9 it says, Now, behold... The cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. And it goes on in verse 10 to say, Therefore, come now, Moses. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So you look at all the words, again, that God uses. We see the words that are used in chapter 1. And then here, God is saying some of the same words. Look what he says. I've seen the affliction, a very strong word. Affliction. It even sounds strong. Affliction, you know? The affliction of my people. Uh, I'm aware of their sufferings. I'm aware of the power of the Egyptians over them and the way that they're treated, the ruthlessness. I have seen the oppression. Again, the affliction, to be crushed. I've seen the squeezing of my people for 400 years with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. And the last thing he said, that I may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So listen, he says the cry. He says it twice. I've heard the cry of my people. And then in verse 9 it says... um, the cry of the sons of Israel. And this wasn't a whining little cry, you guys. This wasn't like the way I used to whine at global alarm systems. Like, man, it's hot. Man, this insulation itches. Man, I need a raise. You know what I mean? It wasn't that kind. It wasn't whining. In fact, that word cry, it actually has a longer meaning. It means a cry of distress. It means a cry of anguish. And so it wasn't this whiny little crying that Israel was crying out to God or crying out. It was a cry, a tears shed, tears of anguish. They were desperate to be free. You guys hear what I'm saying? They were desperate to be free. Now listen, remember a couple weeks ago we talked about something that God told Abraham when he established his covenant, when he made some promises to Abraham. In chapter 15, verse 13, God told Abraham, your descendants are going to be strangers. They're going to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Talking about the people of Israel in Egypt. He says, where they will be enslaved and oppressed. Check it out. They're not just going to be slaves. Because there, there have been slaves over the course of history that have been treated okay, right? He says, they will be slaves and they will be oppressed. Not just slaves. They are going to suffer. They are going to be crushed. For 400 years. Now he does follow it up with, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward they will come out with many possessions. My question is this. Why would God allow this to happen? What purpose could God possibly have with 400 years of jail time for the Jewish people? I want you to listen very carefully so that you can get this this morning. 
as concerned as God would be about the temporary physical condition of Israel as they suffered in Egypt, God was even more concerned about the eternal spiritual condition of every tribe, of every time, of every nation, of every person, his prized creation. Was he concerned? Was he heartless towards Israel? No, that was the Egyptians. He had a heart, but he was up to something bigger, and that was the eternal spiritual condition of the world. So God was using the physical exodus as a prophetic picture of a spiritual exodus. In fact, write that down this morning. That's important. God used the physical exodus as a prophetic picture of a spiritual exodus. In other words, we can see what we would call types and shadows or pictures of our salvation in the story of the exodus. For example, Egypt is a type or a shadow, a picture of the world. Egypt was an ungodly place filled with foreign gods. It was a kingdom that had no knowledge or recognition or acknowledgement of the one true God. Okay? It's a picture. It's a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type or a picture of Satan, the ruler of Egypt, the ruler of this world. Scripture says that, that, um, that Satan is the ruler of this world, that he's the prince of the air. So Pharaoh is a type of, uh, of Satan. Israel was God's people. Israel is God's people. And it's a picture or a type of Christians, both Jews and Gentiles today. So the people of Israel in this story is us. We're looking at this and the type, the shadow, the picture of what they're going through is a picture of what God is doing and how he's moving in our lives. And then most people don't realize this when they look at the Exodus story. But another shadow, another type is found within the oppression of the people. And the oppression of the people is symbolic or a type or picture shadow of sin. The oppression of the people is a type of sin. So as we read this, we have to consider that the oppression going on is pointing to sin. Listen, when Adam and Eve, listen very carefully, when Adam and Eve believed Satan's lie, when they disobeyed God, they became spiritually dead. And separated from God. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12 it says that every person ever born would be born spiritually dead. Sinful in nature. Separated from God. That's what Romans 5 12 says. If you look at Romans 6, just the very next chapter, it talks about how we used to be slaves to sin. You guys hear that wording? We were slaves to sin. It's who we were. It's what we did. We didn't have a choice. That's, how, that's, that's, that's what we were. It goes on in verse 14 to say that sin is no longer your master. It used to be our master. You hear that wording? Sin was our master. We were under the rule. We were under the taskmaster of sin. That is what ruled us. And um, it goes on to say all kinds of stuff in Romans 6. But listen, we were basically, we were born slaves. We were born slaves to sin. Psalm 51, 5, the psalmist said it. He says, For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Now, I want to show you a scripture uh, from the book of Job that we read Job and we kind of overlook it. We don't think much about it. 
Of course, if you know anything about Job, Job is considered the oldest book in the Bible. Even though it's not the first book chronologically, it's, uh, it's said to be the oldest book written in the Bible. So Job says something right here in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 7, that is interesting because it precedes, uh, it precedes Abraham. It precedes uh, Moses. It precedes Jesus, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, all of that. And look what he says. Man is born for trouble. As surely as sparks fly up from a fire, man is born for trouble. In other words, that's what happens when you have a fire, sparks go that way. And just as surely as that is the case, man is born for trouble. And I was looking at that, and I was just out of curiosity, I looked up the word trouble, and it has two main uses. There's two ways this word trouble in that Hebrew, that ancient Hebrew, could be used. One is hard labor. It could be used to indicate or communicate hard labor, intense labor, toiling, okay? And you know what the other one is? Wickedness. Sin. This word, amal, can be used in one of those two ways. And I just think that's interesting because what did God use in the Exodus to bring about a desperation for deliverance? Intense labor. Toiling. Whips on a back. Oppression. Why? Because that is the condition that the unbeliever is in at the point when he truly cries out for God. When an unbeliever finally says, I give up, I'm done, it's because he is desperate in his or her life. Why? Because of the effects that sin has had. We may point it to something else. We may say it's because of this, but ultimately, it's that dynamic. We are separated from God. We are living as slaves. You guys hear what I'm saying? The taskmasters are a picture of sin, and the actual labor is a picture of the effects of that sin. If you look at James 1, it says, you know, when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And sin when it's full grown, brings about death. And so you think about this, think about this. Most of the Israelite slaves died not from natural causes, but they died because of the intense labor that was forced upon them. You guys seeing that? It's not too deep, is it? They died not because they grew old, but because they probably grew old and weary too soon. Why? Because of the intense labor. It's the same thing. We, as, as sin takes root and as it grows, it eventually brings about death. <laughs> and these people were born into this slavery. There was nothing they could do about it. There was no way out of this life, this life of toiling, this, this Groundhog Day type life, which is the same thing, same thing, over and over and over, hopeless, painful, Ouch, whips, taskmasters, no way out except to be rescued out. Do you guys see what I'm saying? I can remember before I got saved, I can remember the different struggles, the different stuff that was going on. And I remember, you know, even when Melissa and I got together, she was a good person. She was a follower of Christ. I wasn't yet. And there was all kinds of things that I wanted to change in my life so I could snag the girl, you know what I'm saying? And I had a hard time. I can't get rid of this. 
Some things changed okay, some of the easier things, but some of the things were really difficult. It's because there's only one way out of sin. There's only one way out of that behavior, and it's to be rescued out. There's nothing that I could do. If any, Egypt, uh, any Israelite tried to, to escape or tried to leave, it wasn't going to do any good. Why? They were overwhelmed by their taskmasters. Whips everywhere. And the effects of that over the course of time was people dying. Not just from good old natural life, but from a hard, oppressed life. Believe me, the Israelites were desperate to be delivered. And that's just what God promised Abraham he would do. He didn't forget the promise that he made for Abraham, to Abraham. But he was painting a picture. Listen to me. He was painting a picture for the world of an even bigger promise that he would fulfill. Turn to Isaiah 61. Most of us are familiar with this scripture. This is a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about the Messiah, the one, the one true deliverer who would, who, would make, who would lead that spiritual exodus. And look what it says. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. In other words, He's called me and placed within me the power to, and look what it is, to bring good news to the afflicted. Listen to the words. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty or freedom to captives, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Listen, for 400 years, it wasn't a favorable time for the people of Israel. They were still under God's care, and he was, they were still part of his plan, but it probably didn't feel like a whole lot of favor. But that's what Jesus came to do, is to bring favor, the year of favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. And we'll see as we move on that, that not only did God lead them to a promised land, lead them away from the oppression, but he also call, uh, brought vengeance upon the people of Egypt. We'll talk about that. Look at verse 3. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, in other words, something beauty instead of something ugly, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, that's not M-O-R-N-I-N-G, it's M-O-U-R. The sadness, the, the desperation. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. I want everyone to say a spirit of fainting. Spirit. Say it one more time, a spirit of fainting. Spirit. Listen, we may not acknowledge it at first because sin, uh, sin has a sweetness for a season. But eventually, sin sucks the life out of us and it leaves us with a spirit that is faint. A spirit that is weary, that is worn out, that is exasperated, that is done. Kind of that old thing, man, we're praying for somebody and we say this a lot, you know, but he's probably not going to really change until he comes to the end of his rope. That's that feeling, that spirit of faintness. And that's what Jesus came to do, to get rid of that, to that, that fainting. I can remember when I didn't know the Lord. I was done. The time is in, in, impeccable in my life because I was done. And the gospel appealed to me. It's not that I understood it all. It's not that I loved Jesus. I've said that before. I didn't love Jesus. But my God, I knew that I needed him. I was desperate. I was miserable, suicidal. I was done. And I didn't even live that bad of a life. What was the deal? 
I was a slave to sin. I was a slave. God is ready to move us away from the oppression of sin that the world brings. Us. Remember that physical exodus is a prophetic picture of a spiritual exodus. God is ready to move us away from the oppression of sin that the world brings. And hopefully I'm, I'm saying things that we're able to recognize and identify with this morning. But the bigger question is, is are we desperate enough to be delivered? That's a good question. Are, are we desperate enough? Do we recognize the fainting in our life? Do we recognize the misery in our life? We try, to, we try to say, well, this is why I'm miserable, because this is happening in my life. This is going on in my life. That's why I'm miserable. And we try to, to, to point to all these things. No, the central reason that God showed us, even in the Exodus, the central reason why we are a miserable people is because we are slaves to sin. And this is especially true if you don't know the Lord. And I'm really speaking to those people this morning that have not said, you know what, I'm done. I need a deliverer. I need a rescuer. And I'm going to cry out in distress and allow the Lord to deliver me. Even as believers, though, we can go through times that are difficult. Times where it's like, I'm just, I'm weary. I'm faint. That's why there's scriptures that talk about mounting up with wings as eagles, soaring over difficulty, soaring over trials. They're going to be there. But are we clinging to, are we crying out to um, the Lord? Are we in sin? Are we, like it says in in uh, um, Romans 6, are we, we're no longer slaves to sin, but are we acting like we're still slaves to sin? Because if we are, then we're allowing the, the sin to be our taskmaster rather than understanding we have a new master and we have a new task. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Are we desperate enough to be delivered? I say that to those people this morning who have not come to know Yeshua, Jesus, as their Savior. But I'm also saying it to the, to the believers this morning that are so bound up in, in certain sins and addictions and things. Are you desperate enough to stop pointing to everything else as the root issue and understand I am living under a, the wrong taskmaster? Amen? So, God is moving His people away from the oppression that Egypt brought. And number two, he was moving his people away from the impression that Egypt wrought. <laughs> That's W-R-O-U-G-H-T, not R-O-T. Although that could probably apply too. And there's two reasons I'm using that word. One is because wrought rhymes with brought. And I thought if I can do that, I'll look like a way better preacher than I am. You know what I mean? <laughs> but the second thing, the reason, is because wrought means to form. It means to shape or to mold. Okay, God is moving his people away from the impression that Egypt had molded into the people of Israel over 400 years. You know, when you live somewhere or some way long enough, it is going to influence who you are and how you live. Isn't that true? I was unsaved for 19 years. Not just unsaved, unchurched. So in my home growing up, again, it wasn't the most despicable home in the world. There was forms of morality and goodness there. But as a whole, there's lots of things I saw, lots of things I did, lots of impressions that were made upon me. Things that even still today, it's like, gosh, I'm trying to get rid of that. 
That happened when I was 10, or that happened when I was whatever. Same thing for you guys. When you live a certain, uh, a certain place or in a certain way for long enough, it's going to influence the depths of who you are. It will leave an impression on you. And listen, Egypt was full of false gods. And really, if you think about it, false hopes, all kinds of things. Think of the things. There's idols everywhere. And we're going to talk about this later um, in this series a couple weeks from now about what, what e- Egypt was like. And actually, next week, we're going to talk about that. But think of the things that Israel was exposed to, the idolatry, the way of worshiping, the mentalities, the way that Egyptians lived. We can see it even. What is the first thing they do when they freaked out in the desert? They built an Egyptian god in the form of a golden calf. Right? What is the first thing they do when they got a little thirsty? Oh, take us back to Egypt. At least there we had water. We had wine. Oh, we're hungry. At least there we had meat. Isn't that how we are? It's crazy. Oh, I was miserable there. But somehow, we want to go back there. Why? Because it was comfortable. It was painful. But there was also some comfort in that. It's crazy. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on this series. And we've heard things like this before, but you can write this down. God moved Israel out of Egypt so that he could move Egypt out of Israel. Think of that. God moved Israel out of Egypt so that he can move Egypt, the impression, out of his people, Israel. Remember what I said? God used the physical exodus as a prophetic picture of a spiritual exodus. We talked about um, Egypt was a type of the world. Pharaoh was a type of Satan. Um, And all those things. Well, listen. Moses, God sent Moses to do a work. Moses is a type of of Christ. Moses was the deliverer. He was the one that came and saved them and led them out. He's a picture of Jesus, a picture of our Savior. The Passover, which we celebrate uh, every year here, it's a big deal for us. We understand. We celebrate it. We know the symbolism and the blood of the Lamb and all that kind of stuff. The Passover is symbolic of the crucifixion. Why? Because it's the blood of the Lamb that saves. We are saved by the blood of the Lamb. We are brought near by the blood of the Lamb. There's all kinds of ways Scripture says it. It's about the blood. Amen? Most people don't realize this, but as far as this, uh, the types and shadows, you know, the Red Sea was a picture of baptism. Think about it. The people of God were brought out of that land, and they went through that water. They were underneath it. It didn't get them, you know, but they were underneath that. And they were headed to the, whole, the other side of this this chasm. They were headed away from Egypt, away from that life, away from all of that. Amen? And when they were all the way on the other side, it says that the water came down, and but what did it come down upon? Their oppressors, which means that no longer did the people of Israel have to experience what? Painful, intense labor. It's the same thing for us. In fact, we're having a baptism tonight. I hope you guys are coming over at the Cheney's. But think about it. These guys, there's five people that are going to be baptized. And what are they saying? They are saying, I am dying to myself, my old way of living, my old life. I am being buried just as Christ was put into the grave. But just as Christ came out of the grave, I am being resurrected in the newness of life that is found in Jesus Christ. And I don't have to go back to the old way of living. Why? Because my oppressors have been crushed. We don't live like that's the way it is, but that is the way it is. That is an eternal truth. Amen? 
And the Ten Commandments, it's a type and a shadow as well. A type and a shadow of what? It's a picture of the new life or the new pattern for living. Remember the impression or the pattern for 400 years that was, that was sewed into the people of Israel. And obviously fruit came from that as soon as they were in distress in the desert. We see it come out. God's trying to get it out. That impression was left on the people of Israel. So the Ten Commandments, it's like, hey, listen, those 400 years that you saw this and you saw this and they worshiped this and they worshiped that, listen to the Ten Commandments. This is a new way. This is a new pattern for living. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy 6 real quick. Deuteronomy 6. Of course, the Ten Commandments are first found in Exodus 20. And then over here in Deuteronomy 5, just the chapter before, we see them repeated. Okay, so God repeats uh, the, the Ten Commandments. And then over here in chapter 6, look what it says. I'm going to start reading. Um, I'm going to start in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a big statement for a people who'd spent 400 years under a multi-God community. Amen? The Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with what? We say it all the time. All your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. Why? Because for 400 years, this is what they've been taught. We've got to get a new thing going in my people. So teach it to your children. God's very adamant about that. So... Uh, and shall talk with them when you sit down in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Let this stuff be burning in you. You shall bind them as a sign on, um, on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And it goes on to talk about the importance of getting God's new pattern into them. But here's what I love the way he starts out. The Lord, the Lord your God is one. And look what he says. And everything that I just said... In chapter 5, the Ten Commandments, you need to love me with those, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. In other words, not one part of our person is exempt from wrapping ourselves around that truth and that pattern and that new way of living. Now, we know that we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. Jesus said, um, a new commandment I give to you, the law of love. So now what? We're wrapping our hearts and our brains around that. Not the law of the hate of the world. Amen. But of the law of God. He's wanting to change that impression. He's wanting to uh, bring us away from that impression that Egypt wrought, that Egypt left, and that the world leaves on us. You know, um, I said earlier, God moves us out of Egypt or move them out of Egypt. Well, God is moving us out of the world. And then what he wants to continue to do is move the world out of us. But see, this is where people get it wrong. They, they, they think, oh, it's just all about salvation. Listen, God never intended to save us and then to leave us alone, to fend for ourselves, to figure it out, to find our way. It was never just about being saved. It was also about being sanctified. It was about being set apart. It was about establishing a way of living that was new, that was different from the world. And you know, in a lot of ways, that is opposite of the world. See, that's the thing. We mostly float around. It's it's different from the world. But a lot of the way that we're supposed to live is supposed to be the complete opposite of the world. And when we're not opposite in those appropriate areas that need to be opposite, what we find ourselves is in that gray water. 
That gray place, not white, not black, but that that lukewarm water that Jesus said, I don't even like that stuff. I'll spit that out. I'd rather you just be cold than to be lukewarm. That's what God is trying to do. He's trying to, to get the world out of us a new and living way. Hebrews 10 talks about a new living way, how Jesus opened up for us a new living way. It makes me think of that that baptism through the Red Sea. It opened up and led to a new living way with the old and dead way crushed. Yafala, is this too intense? This is what God is wanting to do. I thought about how the world had its hands on us. Think of it that way, how the world, the world had its hands on me. The world was molding me and shaping me for a long time molding and shaping you for a long time. Write this down. We've got to allow the hands of the world to be replaced by the hands of God in our lives. Okay? And there's that old picture that Isaiah gives us in 64 verse 8. He says, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. Notice it says now as opposed to then. There's a now for us. There's a now and for always versus a then and back then. He says, now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. That rhymes too. That's nice. Father, Potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. We've got to allow the hands of the world to be replaced by the hands of God. And that's what we're not doing as a whole. Literally, a lot of us live like this. God's got, we're allowing God to have one hand on one shoulder and the world to have its hand on our other shoulder. You know, you think about the, the play, the struggle that's in that. James said that, that a double-minded man is unstable. That's, think about that. If this is what's going on, I'm just like this all the time, and I'm not solid about anything. I think God's like, listen, if, you're gonna be, if you want to be solidly for the world, go for it. That tastes better in my mouth than someone who's just like, ah, oh. You know, that's, that's the truth. That's the way God feels about it. Of course, Romans 12, 2, we're all familiar with that. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world or to the impression that the world leaves on us, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's that pattern. There's that impression that the world leaves on us. Now, here's the problem. A lot of believers, because they like that sweet season that the world offers and brings, they don't see it as oppression yet. They haven't maybe felt the extent of the fainting. It will come. It will come. I always think, let's be ahead of the game and get there before the fainting comes. Amen? Let's just call on Jesus now so that now is the day of salvation today, right? Let's do that today so that we don't have to jack with it later. It's going to come. The fainting will come. The misery will come. Why? Because sin is a taskmaster. And the effects are death, misery. Amen? But see, some people haven't been there yet. And they're still enjoying, believers even, enjoying, enjoying what they had from the world. They have that idea of, well, at least there I had whatever. At least there I was this. Because you know what? Following Christ, it's hard. It's good, but it's hard. Is it not? In these days, it's hard to do the right thing, say the right thing, look at the right thing, not look at the wrong thing. It's hard. People don't like hard. They want it their way right away. Comfort. What? Like the people of Israel. Take us back. Are you leading us out here to kill us? At least there we had meat. At least there we had drink. We had wine. We had whatever. We had comfort. At least we, did, we were sleeping on beds rather than sleeping on rocks. 
Listen, C.S. Lewis says something. He says, Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave with regret? There are better things ahead than anything we leave behind. This is a man, a godly man. This is a man who, who, who's obviously been there and has known some things, knows the world, and he understands the suffering. He understands the, uh, the fainting that comes from living, as, for, from living as a slave to sin. What I want to do, you guys stand up.